Welcome to the Xterra Podcast. I'm Tom Patton. The Xterra mission is to explore and discuss the business of space and its effect on the national and global economy, as well as life on Earth. How does what happens in space affect your life every day? That's what we're exploring on the Xterra website, as well as on this podcast. My guest is Dan Hawk of the United First Nations Planetary Defense. And Dan, thanks for joining me on the program. You're welcome. Glad to be here. Let's just start with the basics. What is United First Nations Planetary Defense? Well, United First Nations Planetary Defense is uh, was born out of the um, the J Treaty of 1794, Article Three, which uh, basically eliminates the line of demarcation between First Nations people in Canada and the United States of America. So basically, we have. 574 federally recognized tribes in the United States and another 630 in Canada. Uh, and uh, that the, the, the Canadian-U.S. border basically separates us, and we're all one people. Uh, so the United First Nations Planetary Defense arises from that treaty, but uh, it, the planetary defense portion of that is uh, was the opportunity to place a, a ready rocket on the launch pad uh, to be able to mitigate um, asteroid threats uh, to Earth, and that's uh, that was our main purpose. And then the planetary defense quickly evolved to the planetary defense of Earth, from you know destruction of our our oceans and uh, in our our, our our basically our our Earth. So uh, Native Americans are known to be caretakers of Earth and caretakers of uh, of our oceans. So we need to basically and extend that you be caretakers of space as well. So I bet you watched the DART mission with great interest. I did. I did. And, and here's the reason why. And there, it, is, it is of great interest because, um, you know, around the world, we do not have any ready rockets on the launch pad to mitigate any type of um, asteroid strike. Now, we, we learned our lesson in 2013 with the Shelivians um, meteorite when we didn't see it, didn't see it coming in and it just, you know, looked over a shelly fence. But the point is, is that was only a 20 meter asteroid. What if it would have been larger and what if it would have come in a different angle uh, uh, to Earth? It could have been very destructive. So the point is here is that with the DART mission, you had telemetry going out to Didymus A and Didymus B. And so um, when it got closer to the smaller um asteroid object um, that was um, in orbit around the larger one that um, it moved from telemetry to visual and it was the visual that allowed the um, the impactor to impact uh, the, the smaller asteroid and so really what we're interested in then is is that same uh, telemetry to visual capability on an impactor here on, on earth so that we can have um, that impactor ready to go if we if we are able to determine that an asteroid is a threat to 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 earth and we'll talk about that a little bit more in just a moment but i want to first learn something about your background how did you get involved i got involved as you know i was a navy nuclear reactor operator and been in the army you know I'm native american of course uh oneida iroquois confederacy uh you know being of the warrior society of uh, indigenous people is uh you know 
uh, is something that we do. You know, we 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 do that. You can we can tell that from you know our past and by our you know the code talkers of World War One and World War Two. But um, that that ability to do that kind of work on uh, fast tech submarines along with you know electronics led me to being able to do different types of of, of space things. And so I got involved with Wisconsin Space Grant and uh, started uh, working with uh, Dr. Eileen Yingst and we created the First Nations uh, Launch Program, uh, which is uh, aerospace STEM for indigenous tribal students and, and college and universities, as well as, um, you know, the ACES chapters, which is American Indian Science and Engineering Society chapters. But my ability to work with electronics uh, led me into the idea of uh, of, of of creating an aerospace STEM program for uh, First Nations uh, students, and that that came about because I was at the University of Wisconsin Green Bay, and an email had come past saying, "Hey, would you do you, would you like to join um, a rocket team?" But then I went to the college nomination and asked, "Well, why is it that you know Native Americans don't have a rocket team?" And so Five Clans Rocket Team was born, and that's how that all started. You talk about a ready rocket. What does that mean? A ready rocket to me means this, is that you have an impactor or let's let's put it this way. You have have a payload capability. And let's say in this case, on an electron rocket by by Rocket Lab. Uh, So they have rockets available to for this kind of mission to set aside so what is it that what is it that we need what we need is we need is the um, the kick stage right so the mm-hmm. kick stage can be used for basically four different things you can use it as a scout mission so you're able to launch that rocket and an asteroid that you think is going to impact earth and then it can send back data on that asteroid whether it's a, a as an example, it could be: is it a solid? Is it is it a um, is it a binary asteroid? Is it um, is it a, uh, a a a pile asteroid where you um, as a loose pile asteroid where they're they're loose and they're not where it's not solid? Uh, how is tumbling? You know what is what is um, what is what is orbit is what is trajectory is? So it it can send back that information. So basically, a scout mission. So that same that same um, the same kick stage can also be you know could be used as a as an impactor just like Dart mission. It can also we can also put laser ablation on it so we can use it to ablate um, the uh, an asteroid. So in, in when you when you when you do that and it, it moves in 180 degrees compared to where you're lasering the, the asteroid. So it just moves it a little bit. And then you have uh, something called pile, um, uh, pul- pulverize it, I'm sorry, pulverize it, which is uh, basically um, injecting penetrators into the asteroid before it enters the Earth's atmosphere so that it breaks it apart and then um, burns up in its atmosphere at smaller pieces like uh, 10 meters in diameter or less. What so co- different- Go ahead. There's there's four different four different methods of asteroid defense. What kind of lead time would you need, and where would you get the information that you think this is this asteroid is going to impact the Earth? 
Well, there's or, there's there's me, there's mechanics, uh, orbital mechanics that, that tells us that because the Earth is in its natural revolution around the sun, so right. we know where the Earth is going to be at a certain point in time. So there has to be an intersection of the asteroid and the Earth at the time that it's going around the sun. So if if the asteroid is a little bit late, then it misses Earth. If the asteroid is is a little bit before Earth in its natural orbit, it will miss Earth, right? So in, there's a 10-minute time from beginning of Earth to the end of Earth where that asteroid could strike Earth, you know? So um, the idea then is that if you know that an asteroid is going to impact Earth at some, at some po- point on the Earth's surface, and then what you what you de- what you're able to do because you know asteroid defense is the only um, natural disaster that we can prevent. So we can prevent that. So we can what we can do is we can just like you know D- the Didymus A B mission that we had for DART is that you can slow the asteroid down by impacting it just a little bit if it's far enough out. So that way it slows it down and, and it'll miss Earth because the Earth would then would be before the impact of of the asteroid, the asteroid would just go right on by Earth, we just fly right on by. Um, and so it's about moving the asteroid or slowing it down just enough so that allow the Earth to get out of the way of the asteroid. And that's that's exactly what we need to do. Does the initial data from the Didymus missions show that that would have been successful had that asteroid been on a target to hit Earth? Yes, it would be, absolutely. So there's no doubt about it. So, but yeah, that you know, if we know it far enough in advance, we can slow an asteroid down and it'll miss Earth. So we can do that. So what other avenues of research is United First Nations Planetary Defense pursuing? Regarding asteroids? Yes. Oh, okay. So that would be that would be the pulverized portion of that, which would be how to peel back an asteroid enough so that it breaks apart so that it when it enters the earth's atmosphere that is not one solid piece of asteroid that we, we break it apart enough so that it burns to let 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 the let the natural defense of our atmosphere um burn up the asteroid as it comes into earth as it comes into earth's orbit so how to do that when to do that you know you right up until about you know, probably a minute before uh, it reaches the, the Earth's atmosphere, you could still break it apart. And you talked about laser ablatement too, and that sounds a little bit like science fiction. How far along is that kind of research? Well, we have, you know, uh, you know, uh, Dr. Philip Lubin at the University of California, Santa Barbara, is working on those kinds of things. And basically we're talking about um, a directed energy form of laser ablation. And so, but the whole idea is to be able to mount that onto a kick stage so that if we do find that we need to move an asteroid a little bit, that we have the ability, you know, it's already, you know, uh, already placed on the kick stage, ready to go. We just continue to update it. Um, you know, so that when the call comes in saying we have an asteroid that's inbound that's going to impact Earth, that we have the ability to just to integrate the the kick stage onto the electron and just and launch it. Um, so that's really the it's really the that's really the where we need to go is we've got to have something ready on a kick stage, whether it be you know the kick stage is an impactor itself, whether we can mount a laser ablation on it, or we can put some type of 
projectiles onto it, which are penetrators for the pulverized admission, or we use it as a scout mission and, and to identify and to be able to radio back to Earth what it is so that we have a better idea of how to defend ourselves. A loose pile would be very difficult to, to move under the circumstances of, you know, penetrators or, um, you know, or impactors because it's loose. Um, yeah. It's like, like, like putting something into a, a bunch of sand. It's just not going to, not going to break apart. How, how important is the recent surge of private rocket companies to the to this because getting a, a ready rocket from NASA probably would have been a, a a big challenge and now with all these private rocket companies it sounds like you might have a better opportunity to have that ready rocket available to you well yes and here 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 we go with rocket lab you know they they have basic basically commercialized and manufactured or you know did the henry ford kind of thing of, of, of building a rocket rocket bodies and you know in their engines so really all what we need to do is just you know to have the impactor um portion of it or the laser ablation or the, the, in other words just to have the kick stage turned into turned into the the um the mitigator that we need and, and if we had the ability to do um had four kick stages we could do one at one of each we could have we could have a scout ready mission capability to to launch right away to, to radio back the information uh we could have one that's set for laser ablation one for impactor and then one set for penetrators so so we could do that we just we just need to get it done so that's really where we're at rocket lab launches from new zealand and they're getting ready to launch from wallops in virginia yes. does it does it matter where this interceptor rocket is is launched from and what are the logistics involved in having a rocket on a launch pad ready to go kind of at all times no but let's see that's the whole thing you don't need to have the rocket ready to go at the launch pad at all times all you need to do is have the have the the kick stage prepared and ready to go okay because they they have the rocket so it's just a matter of you know just a matter of integrating the the kick stage onto the rocket so we just they just keep rotating their rockets through and launching as they do, and and they say, okay, hey, we have an inbound. So they, what they do is they just take that next rocket and we say, hey, we're we're putting our own, we're putting this kick stage on because we need to because we need to mitigate this this threat. And I suppose whatever customer that was would probably say, okay, it's better to, to save the planet than to launch my satellite. <laughs> right. So, ex exactly. And so, you know, that's really the issue. It's not an issue about having the rocket on the launch pad ready to go. It's the fact that you have the kick stage ready to go to be able to mitigate the threat. And that's what we don't have. And that's where we need to go. I'm talking with Dan Hawk of the United First Nations Planetary Defense on the Xterra podcast. Take a moment right now and click on subscribe. To make sure you don't miss any of our podcasts, or if you're watching on YouTube, any of the videos from Xterra, the Journal of Space Commerce. Dan, tell us a little bit about your experience at the United Nations earlier this year. At, at the United Nations, from the Uni United Nations Indigenous Committee point of view, or or from UN. Copeless, or what are you? What are you? What are you asking? Um, well, let's talk a little bit about all of it because I think it's the, I think it's all interesting as as it relates to to this planetary defense mission. 
Okay, so I think uh, when it comes to planetary defense, you know, as a Native American, you know, I think that defending Earth is one of our most important things, right, that we can do as Indigenous people. So it's not just about, or it's in addition to caretakers of 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 a land, caretakers of the ocean, caretakers of a, of our space, and caretakers now, you know, the moon as well. So you know, the idea here is that if we are caretakers, then does that not include, you know, taking care of the Earth from asteroid? you know, um, you know, asteroid strike, um, you know, it's very possible, you know, there's 200,000 asteroids out there that have not been classified that are under 300 meters in diameter. So, you know, we still have a ways to go, um, in classifying asteroids. And, and we know that, why do we know it? We know that because of the Shelyabinsk meteorite, um, or asteroid that, you know, that, that blew up over Shelly Minsk in 2013. It, we, we didn't know it was there. We didn't know it was coming and it just was there. And also, and, and, and so was, did it come at us blind? How do we not know that it was going to be there? So the point is, is that that can happen with a much larger asteroid. So instead of 20 meters, or what if it was 300 meters in diameter? Now you're talking a lot of damage. You're talking, you're talking a lot of people that would be, would be killed. So um, it's important that we know uh, where they are. And if we do know where they are, you know, they're having this, uh, having the, this um, the intercept capability of Earth in its natural orbit around the sun, then we need to mitigate that somehow. Because if we know it, we, we can stop it, we can move it, we can do something with it so to prevent it from hitting Earth. Um, but we need to know. Coming up November 15th, you've, you're holding the Intertribal Space Conference. What is that going to be about? The Intertribal Space Conference is, to, is really to bring Native American people or tribal governments together with the space industry and introduce them to each other. Because up until this point, the space industry has not recognized indigenous people or tribal governments um, and it's the same thing with our tribal governments have not gone to the space industry and knocked on the door and said, hey, you know, we really want to help you with this lander. We really want to help you with this rover or in the opposite direction. And so in a, in a, a lot of that blame goes on NASA. A lot of this blame goes on, you know, our, our federal government for placing us on the Internet, uh, the, the International Traffic and Arms Regulation List and to prevent us from monitoring our resources in space. So it is it is a work in progress that is, uh, is trying to mitigate oppression of indigenous people, you know. Uh, so we, you know, it, the United Nations states that um, that we, we all have an equal right to space. And mm -hmm. space should be for all. You know, International Space Station is, is there, so space is supposed to unite us. So that's that's how I, I see that. So the United Nations says that going into space is a human right. The United Nations states that going into space is a right of self-determination of indigenous people, right? So when we look at it from a, from a humanitarian point of view, and then for the United States government to say to indigenous people, we're placing you on the international traffic and arms regulation list to prevent you from monitoring your resources in space. That that's very hurtful. That's very, that's very oppressive. And so, um, you know, so in reality that, you know, since 1957, you know, when we start putting things into space with Sputnik and that, you know, native American people have been, purposely left out of space 
you know, on, on purpose, uh, mm. deliberately. And so what we need to do is we need to change that. We need to get the, our space industry and indigenous people working together. So that's what Artemis is all about. So we go to Artemis program, you know, we go to the moon and Mars to stay. Uh, it would be it would be important to include indigenous people in that mission that that that, that overall art, arching arching vision of uh, of what we would consider to be a unified vision of space. But how is it possible to have a unified vision of space when we're when Native American people are, are excluded, right? So if you were excluded, there cannot be no unified vision of space. And so what we really need to do is we need to say to the federal government, to NASA, that, you know, indigenous people here, we are here, we exist, we are not invisible, um, you know, and the, the idea of a rising tide raises all ships, that should be us too. We were talking about a trillion dollar space economy, yet indigenous people are left out. And so how is that, how is, how is that, how is that helpful to us as, as indigenous people? We have STEM scholars, we have aerospace engineers, we have, we have, uh, you know, we have electricians, we have, um, you know, we have mechanical engineers, we, but when they, they go to college and they, they, they go off to work, they leave the reservation. Mm-hmm. They go to work to Boeing, you know, to Lockheed Martin, you know, Ball Aerospace and, and you know, all the, the space industry. And they're, they're, so what's left is a void on our reservations. So here is an opportunity with Artemis to, to create that unified vision of space by also creating space facilities, as an example, for doing things like rovers and, you know, landers and, you know, um, habitats and those things that support the art of this mission but at the same time raise the social economic status of reservations so um so that we are not poor that we are not dependent on the united states government that we are actually of help and we support artemis and instead of being instead of being the opposite which would be you know to drag it down or to be hindered do you find that that attitude makes it more challenging for First Nations youth to become interested in the space program? Yes. And, you know, there's, there's, there's two parts to this. The, you know, the, the first part is that, you know, I helped an indigenous person on First Nations launch who was a Chippewa from Canada. He wanted to work wanted to work for nasa nasa said you know what you're 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 first nations you're canada you you are not you know you're not you you know we can't hire you and so i helped them get a job at boeing okay so that's one part of it but the other part of it is that nasa would say well you know dan hey we're giving you we're giving indigenous students three million dollars for stem and I'm going back to NASA. I'm saying, look, what you're doing is you're creating an artificial ceiling, because what you're what you're really saying is that you know your Native American students were good. You're good enough to get your you, you know some STEM education money, but you're not good enough for for building a rover. You're not good enough for for enough for building a a habitat. You're not you're not good you're not good enough or smart enough to build a lander. You're not you just don't have that capability, and that's not that's not true. So what it, what it is, this is about the opportunity, right? So the artificial ceiling that I'm talking about is that it's it is a it is a red herring. It's like we'll, we'll give you some STEM education money, but don't come ask us about you know building a rover. We don't want you there. And that's not where we need to be. What we need to be is we need to be in exactly that position. It's like we have this rover project, and we think that you guys can do this. 
bring your tribal people together and let's get this done. And now we've got that opportunity. We have that ability to do that. Let's, let's, let's show them that we can do this and create our own mission or whatever the, whatever the, the idea is. But the point is, is that we, we have to recognize ourselves that we have the if we had the opportunity, we could do we could do great things. We just need an opportunity. Talk a little bit about the tribal space resolutions that are going to be discussed at your conference. Well, I think I think uh, you know we know that you know with with New Zealand as an example, they they are have an indigenous indigenous um, characterization to them. I want say a foundation a tenant uh and, and here's the reason why you have the maori tribe that leases land to rocket lab mm -hmm. so you have this space relationship between indigenous people and the space industry that exists the the indigenous population the aboriginal population of, of new zealand and australia they recognize uh, how important it is to go into space and so they have that ability to create that new zealand um Artemis Accord with with the backdrop of indigenous um, capability of our you know indigenous ways of knowing. But here in America, we didn't have that opportunity. You know, so America creates, oh, we're, we have this Artemis Accord for America, but not from the indigenous point of view. So we like I said, we have 574 federally recognized tribes in the United States. We should have the same ability as New Zealand to be able to create an Artemis Accord um, in the same in the same respect. So that's that's one of them. Um, uh, those um, kinds of um, uh, documents that we think that would be of important to would be important to Indigenous people is to have their own Artemis Accord because we're sovereign you know, and we have the sovereign immunity, the sovereign capability to, you know, and going into space is really about sovereignty. It's about space sovereignty. Um, and so we should be recognized for our sovereign, our, our sovereign entities uh, across uh, all of the United States and, and also into Canada as well. You know, I've talked with folks about something called the overview effect, which I'm sure you're familiar with. And it, it just strikes me that once you get off the planet, all of those artificial boundaries and all of those artificial races and colors and those kinds of things just fade away because every one of us is indigenous to the earth. And maybe that's more of an attitude that they need to, to look into. Well, you know, you know, the Iroquois people, you know, I'm Oneida, right? So mm -hmm. the Iroquois people, we, 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 our, our creation starts in sky world. Mm-hmm. And so for me, it is natural to be in the space. I feel comfortable in space. I feel comfortable talking about, you know, like orbital space debris and going to the moon and mining it and um, being caretakers of it, making sure that we're not polluting the moon or the orbital space around uh, the lunar orbit. Um, I feel comfortable about talking about those things. And so um, the overview effect for me, right? So there is no boundary. As I mentioned to you at the very beginning, you know, the J Treaty of 1794, Article 3, you know, takes away that boundary between our First Nations people in Canada and the United States. Mm -hmm. Yet, at still, and this, you know, and the point is, is that the Department of State still refuses and re refuses to waive satellite export controls from the United States to First Nations people in Canada. 
I am not allowed to help and support my my ancestors, my Oneida ancestors in in Oneida, in Canada, um, because the Department of State refuses to waive satellite escort controls to Indigenous people in Canada, um, and I just think that's wrong. That you know we still have that kind of oppression. You know, it's just not necessary to oppress in that way. Um, so that overview effect is really important that, you know, we understand it, we recognize it, that we are all one people and that the earth is actually in space. Why go into space? We're already in space. We're already, <laughs> we're already, we're already astronauts on, on earth. Yet we have political, we have political, um, uh, um, we have political ideas that prevent us from, from being who we need to be, which is that unified vision of space, that 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 going into space to to take care of each other, um, you know, uh, should should unite us. In reality, that the, we have um, we have some political parties that that fail to recognize what how important the overview effect is. So, just one thing more in nuts and bolts, and that's how are you funded. Mm-hmm. Can you say that one more time? I said, how are you funded? Where where do you get the funding to work on projects like the the uh, kickstage to be able to accomplish your goals? Well, a lot of it, a lot of the funding would come from you know from from tribal governments. Some of it through SBIRs. Some of it um, you know self funded. Uh, and and you know we haven't we haven't gone out to do like. Um, you know, crowdfunding and those kinds of things. We haven't done that yet. I mean, it's a possibility for specific projects uh, for somebody who might be interested in doing like uh, asteroid defense, maybe that they, you know, we could do a specific crowdfunding source for that, for, you know, for putting together something on a kickstage as an example. But um, each, each project seems to come on its own and, um, and, and partly due to, um, the separation of, of 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 Earth observation and the other one of Earth of planetary defenses on Earth, so ocean ocean going as an example. Mm-hmm. So we're doing a lot of research, for example, in in uh, uh, ghost forests and you know uh, uh, harbor dredging remediation and um, ocean plastics and turning turning um, turning unwanted hydrocarbons into rocket fuel. Um, using um, an industrial hemp and phytoremediation kind of plants for um, uptaking uh, toxins so that we are able to turn that into rocket fuel. So a lot of rocket fuel issues that are there, we have, you know, we just we are getting a, um, from NASA Marshall um, uh, Space Flight Center, a, a chamber that we can test our own uh, uh, satellite engines. Uh, specifically in working with that kind of fuel, so hydroxylammonium nitrate, so which is some important for us to do. And then we have, you know, uh, things like industrial hemp fuels. And then mm-hmm. we have um, some of the ideas that are coming uh, from, uh, uh, I, w- I would, uh, I lost my train of thought here, but, but, but I guess the idea is that when it comes to, to funding in general, that these are starting to, to come on their own projects. And so um, it's, you were finding more funding coming from, for ideas like that are, are more earth orientated than they are 
space oriented but one of the one of the most important things that we're working on is a, is a tribal government satellite you know which has the ability to work on blockchain capability mm-hmm. so that that is a, a, a one that's we're also funding as well we ask this of all of our guests, so I'm going to ask you as well to look out over the next 10 to 15 years in space commerce and tell us the role that you see the First Nations playing in space commerce in the near future. Well, the first thing I see happening is that at NASA, we're going to have an Office of Tribal Affairs. We're moving in that direction. And that Office of Tribal Affairs has to do with the federal tribal trust relationship responsibility between tribal governments and the federal federal government. And and when that happens, then we will see set-asides for certain things with Artemis that allows then the the space industry to work together with tribal governments all across the United States. So that that recognition of that office, that ability for for the federal government to finally recognize that tribal people and indigenous people and, and our tribal governments have the ability to work with and in the space industry to support Artemis, I think that's going to be very valuable. So in the next 15 years, I, I think that you're going to find space industry working hand in hand with tribal governments all across the United States working on reservations uh, and creating that, that socioeconomic status, lifting us up, that rising tide lifts all ships. That includes us. That includes our canoes. We, had, we have to lift them up. And so I think that is going to be the huge huge advantage of being able to, to, to work together like that. The other one is I think is a, a most important uh, idea here is of the International Space Station, right? So at the end of the at the end of the decade here, we're, we're they're planning on you know depositing that International Space Station over over uh, our, our Pacific Ocean over Point Nemo and then you know destroying it and burning it up on on reentry. Mm-hmm. Um, we're not going to allow that to happen. So you know that's just not going to not going to be something we're going to allow to happen. Uh, we cannot no longer pollute the ocean on purpose, you can't do it. And so what we're going to do is we're going to look at the ISS in a different way. We're gonna, you know, gonna bump it to a disposal orbit and then work through the OSAM uh, on-service assembly and manufacturing capability to dismantle it in a dis- disposal uh, disposal orbit um, to start kickstart kick the, o- the OSAM capability, but also at the same time, you know, recognizing that we can no longer pollute the earth on, uh, you know, the ocean in this case on purpose, and that the, you know, the burning up of the aluminum creates a, a chelated metal that then is is one part of the factor of destroying the surface microlayer of the ocean, and we don't want to do that. So, um, we have to think better. We have to think differently. We just can't just pollute the pollute the earth on purpose anymore. Um, so, you know, there's an opportunity there for Native Americans to get involved. And, uh, you know, to keep the International Space Station up, not necessarily functioning, but in a way that we can dismantle it um, over time. And so um, that's one of the things we can do. We're also, you know, caretakers of the moon now. We know we make sure we go back to the moon, that we don't um, we don't destroy it in a way that we did at Earth and look at it differently. I suppose that... Um... That uh, plan for the International Space Station would have ramifications for all of these huge constellations of satellites that are designed to to burn up in orbit and come back to the Earth as they reach the end of their life, and that could that could potentially be a problem in those areas as well. 
It will be, but you know, here's the opportunity. So as in every door that closes, a new one opens. So what is the new door? The new door here is that, you know, satellite operators can start looking at materials that are, um, that are more eco-friendly upon re-entry and burning up, you know? So, you know, the FCC says where we go, we've gone from 25 years for, um, you know, deposit of our, of our satellites down to five years, which and it should be zero, should be zero years. And I've already got my, 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 my foot in the door in FCC because you know, we're wrangling about that, that five year rule. But the point is, is that, um, you know, the, the, the satellites that are not going to have the orbit capability should be launched low, you know, 300 kilometers or less. Uh, so that at the end of life that they're ready to go into rapid descent at 160 kilometers and then burn up over the ocean. But the point is then, you know, maybe they should be using uh, eco-friendly materials. Industrial hemp is what we're going to be using for our industrial uh, frame. Uh, you know, either uh, Japan has put up a, a satellite that uses sustainable wood. Uh, so I think there are other materials out there that, that we need to move towards so that when we know that those satellites are going to be burning up into our atmosphere, that we, we start looking at what it is that we're putting in our atmosphere and how we're destroying uh, not only our atmosphere, but our, but our, but our ocean surface microlayer of the ocean and, you know, and, uh, and the ocean itself, because whatever, whatever survives, you know, is ends up in the bottom of the ocean. And that, that is a pollutant, you know, that's polluting. And we, we just can't do that on purpose anymore. Um, we have to think differently. Dan, it's been a fascinating conversation and I could probably sit here and talk with you about it most of the afternoon, but unfortunately we're out of time. So, <laughs> so I really appreciate your time today. I appreciate, I appreciate you asking me to, to talk with you. That is going to do it for this edition of the Xterra podcast. You can subscribe to the audio version of the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many other popular podcasting platforms. Check out our YouTube channel and be sure to click on subscribe so you can stay up to date on developments in space commerce and be notified when we post new videos. You can also get daily space commerce news at xterrajsc.com. One thing more, be sure to connect with us on LinkedIn and follow us on Twitter at XterraJSC. Till next time, I'm Tom Patton. Thanks for joining us.